Welcome to Pioneering Minds. My name is Adam Norris, and each week I'll be sitting down at Macquarie University with a special guest to discuss some of the most interesting, innovative, and improbable aspects of science, art, life, the universe, and everything. Everybody loves a wedding. The romance, the dancing, the drunk speeches, the family politics that keeps Aunt Ethel and Aunt Gladys at separate tables. When it comes to the royal family, though, we really can't get enough of them. The marriage of Prince Harry to Meghan Markle is everywhere. On newspapers, online and on television, on commemorative dinner plates. But why has this fascination with the royal family endured? Is the prospect of Australia becoming a republic still on the cards? We speak with Professor Robert Reynolds about royal weddings and dreams of the Queen. Well, we're here today with Professor Robert Reynolds. Thank you very much, Professor, for coming along and joining us. My pleasure, Adam. Uh, We're going to be talking about all things royal Mm -hmm. uh, today. Which is interesting because royal weddings have been part of our cultural identity since, well, I suppose since Europeans really first came to Australia in a way. There's this strong sense of, of national identity that comes with lineage. So I thought it made sense that pairing up with an heir to the throne in the days of early empire, it mm. makes sense because it's, it's a bit more vital in what our nation yeah. was going to be. But today we still seem to be just as curious and just as fascinated by them. So why do you think here in in Australia of 2018, a royal wedding is still a big deal? Yeah, look, that's a good question. I was just thinking about royal weddings and the, and the first one I can remember, I think, was Princess Anne, which was a big one in the early 1970s. So I remember as a kid watching that on television. I think it was Westminster, if I remember correctly. So that's my first memory of a, of a royal wedding. Mm. But of course, the really huge one before that in, in kind of living memory would have been the Queen to Prince Philip. And um, that wasn't televised in Australia, obviously, but uh, the Princess Anne wedding was. And then, of course, the one after that, the next big huge one was um, Charles and Diana. And then after that, you got even Fergie and um, Andrew was a kind of got a lot Mm. of coverage a little bit similar to the kind of coverage we're getting at the a little bit similar to the coverage we're getting at the moment with um harry and megan markle because uh harry like um, prince andrew and fergie harry's the second in line to the throne well second in line to his brother Mm. who's well so he's fourth but you know what i'm in in that particular generation he's the uh he's the spare the heir and spare uh (laughs) the heir and spare i haven't heard that before no no that's that's the heir and spare um so in that sense there's a little bit of similarity about these two weddings in that that fergie um she was i'll get to the national while we're interested at the moment (laughs) but let's just stick with the royals because they're so fascinating (laughs) i mean fergie was the duchess of york sarah ferguson was she you know she wasn't aristocracy her family was part of the royal circles they're part of the horsey circles i think her father was a major and i think was involved with the queen's horses and she knew the royal family so they were kind of establishment but not aristocracy uh, and, and Prince Anne had actually married someone who wasn't an aristocrat either. So that generation, it was the, that generation who started to really marry outside of other European royals and and then beyond that other uh, British aristocrats because, of course, Princess Diana was a very uh, old lineage mm. aristocrat, the Spencer family, very old English uh, aristocratic family. So there's um, some similarities between Prince Andrew and Fergie and Prince Harry and, and Meghan Markle, but this, as my colleague... Uh, Claire Monagle has said, you know, the interest in this marriage, this marriage has kind of gone through the roof, partly, I think, because Mark, Markle is such a, 
uh, an unusual choice for a royal bride. I mean, she really mm. is. It's this is this kind of groundbreaking if you think about uh, royal brides in the sense that um, you know she is a divorcee, biracial. She's had a, a career, a very high-profile career before she married. Uh, so, I think part of the interest in this royal wedding, part of the interest is because of, is because of the figure of Meghan Markle. Mm. But look. We as a country, we are still interested in the royal wedding. I don't think we're interested in them in the same way that we would have been back in uh, the late 1940s when Princess Elizabeth married Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark, I think his uh, title was, (laughs) because then there was a strong sense that this family was, the Windsors were very much part of our cultural identity, very much part of our political lineage. We were an overwhelmingly uh, English, Anglo-Australian nation. So many people back then still thought of England as the home country. It was not an uncommon kind of phrase to use. So there was a really strong sense of connection with the royal family and the empire. Now, I think that sense of connection with empire has completely disappeared. There's just a residual Mm. There's, the, there's the residual, you know, after effects of that relationship, obviously. So I suspect our, our current relationship with Markle and um, Prince Harry, I still think it's not completely, but it's partly about celebrity. Mm. Um, you know, these are, you know, in terms of celebrities, they're kind of, royals are kind of A-list celebrities, or they have the potential to be if they want to be, because they're there, they're there for life. They're fabulously wealthy, although their money is officially, you know, they may not spend it all themselves, but the Queen's got millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. So they're fabulously wealthy. They live in these huge castles. They have titles. It's like a, it's like a movie, the royal family. I was wondering if there is just a sense of the, of the elaborate pageantry and mm. the, the melodrama that goes into all of this, given that we see the Kennedys in the US yeah. is often referred to as yeah. this Camelot-inspired yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, yeah. thing. Yeah. If we are just... We, we like that idea of a of a ruling elite that we can follow them like like, yeah. like creatures from a fable. Yeah. Well, I guess... So, I'd say that it's... You know, celebrity is, is one component of our interest in this current wedding. But the other one is the, the, the kind of interesting role that the royal family plays in people's lives. Now, you know, I dream regularly about the Queen, sadly enough. <laughs> uh, last week, I had a dream about Prince Edward. I was mates with Prince Edward and Countess Sophie, which is kind of scraping the barrel, I think. <laughs> it's still not bad company still, to keep in dreams. It's not bad. But there's something about the royals that we grow up with them. They, are, they will be there. We assume they're going to be there for the rest of our lives. They grow old as we grow old. They're these permanent fixtures. They're, so there's something about the continuity mm. and the kind of familiarity but distance, which is what when the royal family is working well, that's what they can do well. It's when they get too familiar that, that the, royal, the Windsors move into trouble, I, I think. Mm. So there's something about that, that constancy uh, in a world that's changing the, the identification, you know, the Queen. It's not just me who dreams about the Queen. Most people at some point in their life will probably have a mm. dream about the Queen. I think the role they play in our psyche is kind of interesting too. That is an interesting thing, that there is a psychological reassurance that we get from the royals and puts in mind a, a somewhat grim, but a, an article I read in The Guardian not too long ago about the mechanics that are in place for when the queen passes away Mm. and the bbc will 
sound alarms and yeah. there's going to be bells ringing throughout England yeah. and yeah. public spaces turn into the, they have these these functions yes. all along that people don't yes. really know because most people have never seen the death of a monarch in yeah. the Commonwealth. It will be stronger, of course, in the UK, but psychologically speaking, what do you think Australia will? Yeah, undergo? look, I think I, I definitely think it will have an impact on people. Um, what kind of collective impact it has, I'm not sure. But I think, you know, the last monarch to die was 1952, uh, the Queen's father. Uh, of course, the Queen Mother died a few years ago, and her funeral too, but she was a consort, not the monarch. Her funeral had been, for many years, elaborately planned. They, I think they did kind of loose dress rehearsals yearly or whatever <laughs> there was a code name for the for the event and as with this queen though you know it was as, as i read that article too elaborately detailed mm. planned what's going to happen so i actually think yes so when she dies i suspect it will it will have a a real impact on people because again it's this we've all known the queen she's now 90 in the sense that she's been part of our part of our cultural life part of our political life and you know i'd say kind of somewhere in she's in there in our in our unconscious somewhere mm. uh so she's what she's in her 90s now she's been monarch since 1952 uh when she goes that's that will be registered it'll be registered as a loss as a as an absence so i know people say you know the, the moment to become a republic is straight after the is after the queen dies i suspect straight after the queen dies is not the moment to, to move to become a republic because there'll be a strong there may well be some kind of collective loss or mourning. You know, my bet would be for the Republic movement to, to wait a few years, um, for, uh, once Charles has been king for four or five years, and then move on it. Because I suspect immediately after the Queen, well, when, when a famous figure dies in the, in the world, you, you see the effect that has as it ripples throughout the world. That is going to be magnified by 10 when the Queen dies. Mm. I wonder as well, a lot of of people I know just very tangentially would say that, oh, why don't they just give it to William and just skip Charles altogether, mm. which I think is a bit unfair mm. to Charles. Like, I think mm. he's waited long enough, and he certainly has a, a strong humanitarian mm. streak in him. But in practical terms, will we see much of a difference from from one monarch to the next? It's always it's a difference of style. It'll be, there'll be a difference of style, I think. Um, in many in the in the nuts and bolts, I don't imagine there would be much difference. But uh, they, you know, and the Queen's style has been extraordinary. We, you know, she she has that game face that she puts on, mm. and it's really hard. Apparently, behind the scenes, she's very quite funny. Does wonderful mimics. Apparently, mimics her prime ministers very well. <laughs> Keen sense of humour. But who would know from seeing mm. her in public? And and that's kind of her shtick has been. The, really, the hard-working, conscientious monarch who gives nothing, almost nothing away. I mean, the most emotional we've seen the Queen, I think, was when her yacht, Britannia, was decommissioned. Hmm. Um, and then she cried in public. I, I don't think I've seen her cry otherwise. Hmm. Um, so when Charles... And look, Charles will become king because the idea of the monarchy is you don't get to choose. Mm. Uh, you don't get to jump a generation. In previous times, of course, you could, but that was usually because um, the son would knock up his dad or his uncle or whatever. <laughs> I don't see William doing that. Uh, so Charles will, will become king. Uh, and I know as well that the Queen recently strongly urged the yeah. heads of Commonwealth to yep. grant yep. the you know for Charles to succeed her as the head of Commonwealth. So yeah. that's more or less given the nod. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, how embarrassing having your mum. Yeah. You're 90... <laughs> Your 92-year-old mum going out there, <laughs> heading, heading out to the job interview for you. I'm, I'm being facetious, but, yeah. <laughs> Look, there's, there's, there's a nugget of truth there. Um, touching back to, the, to this, this royal wedding between mm. Harry and, and Meghan Markle, as we said, Harry is fourth or fifth? 
with what Louis is he now? now? So there's Charles, then Charles, there's William, William, and then he's got three children now. Yeah. So he's sixth. Yeah. So there's, there's so it's not a it's not a proximity to the throne mm. issue that kind mm. of makes us interested. I think there is celebrity, but I wonder as well how entwined this marriage might be to the legacy of Princess Diana. Mm. If there's a sense of since her passing, we've been watching the boys grow up. We want mm. to see them do well. Mm. We, you know, we want mm. them to have a good life. Do you mm. think there is an element of nurturing there? I, I, I think I feel like I'm placing too much mm. kindness in greater society, but of wanting the best for them. No, I think uh, it's funny you say that. I think that there's something in that. There's that image which is kind of imprinted on on many people's minds of those of William and Harry walking behind their mother's coffin, which I think has since been acknowledged that was a pretty awful thing to do to two mm. young boys to put them in public to walk that long distance grief stricken behind there and not show not show any emotion behind their mother's coffin so i think there is that and, and there there is that sense of, of of wanting them to do well of of wanting them to be happy there's something universal about a child without a mother that kind of tugs at our heartstrings mm. and of course princess diana was such a charismatic figure uh, you know, her loss was felt very deeply, that coll- kind of collective mourning that um, was experienced after Diana's loss, particularly in the UK. It was an extraordinary cultural moment. So, yeah, I think there is, a, there is the legacy of uh, an after-effect of, of Diana in, in, in the goodwill towards Harry. You know, like that said, she, she was an extraordinary character, Princess Diana. And Kate, uh, the Duchess of Cambridge, you know, she seems lovely and solid and very loyal to her husband. But she doesn't have that kind of charismatic spark at all Mm. that Princess Diana had. In fact, you know, I I have very little sense of what Kate might be like as a person. She seems lovely, but, you know, I think this generation, particularly with William, he is recreating that distance from... There's a certain distance there uh, from the press, which, of course, his mother uh, collapsed. Um, She was hounded by the press, but also used them. Mm. Uh, Whereas uh, her son... Uh, has kept that distance. That said, there is something about Meghan Markle that kind of has a... You can kind of feel it's a bit Diana-ish mm. um, because she's, she's, she's you know, exceptionally beautiful. Uh, she has got that spark of charisma. Uh, you do think she's got her own mind. Well, she, we know she has her own mind because she's voiced it. Mm. Uh, so, you know, unlike Kate, uh, you know, we know what um, Meghan Markle's broad politics are and they're progressive. Mm. You know, she's a feminist... She's concerned with inequality, you know, the kind of causes that she has championed before she became uh, Harry's fiancé. Uh, they hearken back a little bit to some of uh, Diana's uh, causes. Do you think we are seeing a, a, a new twist in the evolution of the monarchy? Because, as we've said, there have been deviations from marrying purely within mm. the aristocracy before. Mm. Uh, and Harry and Meghan, I mean, it, it brought to mind... Edward VIII and Wallace mm. Simpson, mm. although Edward was king, mm. Wallace was American, mm. was divorced, divorced. Mm. and that was a, a momentous deal. He, of course, mm. abdicated, mm. Uh, which Harry isn't going to face. But do you think this is a sign of the the monarchy is changing? With Absolutely, the and you know they are they're really smart. I think the Windsors, in in some ways, they're smart and canny. They really want to preserve the family, the firm. You know, up until recently, the the Windsors were effectively a German royal family. They came over with George I uh, from Hanover, 
effectively minor German princes who then married other German princesses, and this went right on into the 20th century. I think the Queen Mother is the first non-German or Danish queen consort in, in centuries. Or mm. Before that, it was Germans marrying Germans. But she, of course, was an aristocrat, Scottish aristocracy. So then you get Charles marrying another aristocrat, uh, British aristocracy. So you can you can see they've moved. They're moving from the we need to marry other royals to we can marry British aristocrats to the next generation, where they've moved right outside the aristocracy mm. and even probably and right outside the establishment. Because the Duchess of um, Cambridge, her parents I think were a flight. Mother was a flight attendant. Her father mm. a pilot. Mm. Set up their own business. I think her great grandfather was a, a, a miner. Uh, so. Th- it, that's the shift there, I think. That is the huge shift there when William marries Kate and they go completely middle class. And that's smart because they had to do it. It's kind of a democratising, if you like, to a certain degree of the British royal family. Mm. Uh, and it's clever. I think it does make them seem more accessible as well. I don't Absolutely. think everybody's going to be running out thinking, well, mm. clearly the path is laid now that I can marry into royalty. But I think mm. it adds a, a bit more of an accessibility or a human touch. Yeah, Absolutely. So we touched on the idea of the Republic debate Mm. and waiting for the Queen to pass away and Mm. whether or not the movement would immediately kick into gear or if some time would come. What do you think is in the Australian character Mm. to see us shift from a PM to a president? Do you think it's something that we're interested in? Are we willing to to adopt a whole new form of government? Look, I think the Labor Party is... Is clever by. I mean, I think their policy at the moment is to is to do this in two stages. To have a is it a plebiscite to begin with to say do we do you want to become a republic? The polls they vary, but look, the problem is that I think maybe most people might just say yes, but there's very few people who are passionate about it. Uh, and if you're going to make a big change, you've got to have passion. Mm. Um, you've got to have momentum. Because if you, it's it's too easy to oppose change, and as we saw with the last the, the referendum in the late 1990s, you know that got torpedoed by by monarchists very ably exposing divisions within the uh, Republican camp over an appointed president or an elected president. Now most people want most people in this country want to be able to elect their own president if we do go that way, and I think that's a perfectly legitimate uh, desire. It's just very hard for people to get excited about the idea of having a president that our politicians decide, mm. that the two houses of parliament decide on. So, look, I think the, the two things that prevent the republic happening, in my mind, are that lack of passion, the lack of excitement, and the ease with which, the difficulty to argue for the case of change, and the ease with which those who oppose change can trot out arguments. I recall, I was, yeah, I was young at the time, but I do recall during the referendum this minor storm about mateship being mm. included in John Howard's oh, the preamble, the preamble. and the idea that that helped torpedo the whole thing because it was such a ambiguous meaning and what did it mm. suggest? Do you think there is a unified Australian character that we can really tap into here to, to be able to bring any kind of change like that forward? No, not a character. I don't think so. I mean, no. I wouldn't have thought that because we're just too diverse a country. Mm. So it would be more about assembling around a vision, a vision of what the country is and could be, uh, rather than a character, I think. But um, I mean, that, I mean, the difficulty again with the referendums too, it's got to be a majority in 
a majority of votes in a majority of states. That said, uh, given that the, what happened in the postal vote last year, you know, mm-hmm. change is possible, even when conservatives argue very strongly against it. So I can imagine that that, that might have encouraged the Republican cause. But I'm not going to hold my breath because I don't want to go blue in the face. <laughs> so your purely speculative sense of uh, of a future republic is a a bit of a maybe, or yeah. is it a it, is it a matter of time? I just don't know. Well, I'd, you know, I'm 53. I really wouldn't know. I couldn't confidently say I'll see a republic in my life. Mm. I just I couldn't confidently say that. I mean, you really need if you had a bad king, because remember in the 90s they went through a few horrible years, the Windsors. The divorce, the divorces, the sniping between Charles and Diana, the, uh, the death of Diana and the way the royal family dealt with that, and the Prime Minister Paul Keating, who strongly pushed the Republican cause. So there was, you know, there was, and this was the end of 15 years of, of 13 years or whatever it was of, of, of Labor social democracy. So that was kind of the moment to do it. But what really torpedoed it was the election of a Howard government and a Prime Minister who was determined to make sure it didn't happen mm. and played his cards very well. He's a very expert politician. Speaking of expert, I know that your, well, one of your mm. specialities is looking at, at Australian post-World War II history, mm. uh, but particularly in uh, sexuality yeah. and identity politics, which I imagine over the last 70-odd years that there would be a lot to cover. It would be a good time to study this. Yeah. But, I mean, in that time we look at political figures and political movements and there's been duds, there's been excitements, Whitlam getting the sack and... Mm. Bob Hawke on the America's mm, Cup mm, win. Mm. There's been colour in there, but we don't really see anything like the Kennedys in the US, that Camelot idea. We mm. don't see a sense of lineage like the royals have, some kind of dynastic sense of, mm. of this is part of mm. who we are and this is holding us together. Why do you suppose we haven't gone down that path ourselves and found that family that... We all aspire to. Right. Well, I guess one, because we do have a royal family, even though it's distant now. We, still, we do have that royal family. It's still family. there. So I don't think we still have that, that kind of desire that the, the Americans do. But actually, I, uh, we do have political families. And we, uh, there's no doubt about that. There's, um, I think I was reading today, Alexander Downer's daughter is, is picked to run for a seat in Adelaide. And that, so that makes her about the third generation of Downers who have mm. politicians. Um, same, you know, Beasley's, I think his daughter is running. Uh, so there's another third generation. So there's no doubt we have political families. But, you know, if we look at America at the moment, there's actually a turn against political dynasties. There's a sense of uh, no more. Trump is the big disruptor in this in, in this game. The, the Clintons, the Bushes, there's a kind of sense of exhaustion, I think, and the Kennedys in America about mm. the, the entitlement uh, that comes with those families. The political entitlement. Mm. I did notice that there's another Kennedy out there now. I can't oh, there's that younger is. generation of Kennedys that, mm. um, yeah, that, that are they've been congressmen, I think, at various levels. Yeah. yeah. I also wanted to touch on another of your your research interests, which was looking at Australian volunteers mm. during, especially during HIV yep. and AIDS crisis. I was hoping you could touch on that on just what your your insights and your takeaway was, but also to address this somewhat common sentiment I hear of how the young generations in Australia now are politically apathetic. They're just not engaged. Mm. They're not getting into social causes. They're not Mm. that interested in social justice. It seems a bit of hyperbole, but what's your take Mm. on that? Uh, Look, I remember people said the same thing about my generation. I was at university in the 
80s as an undergraduate. And even then, people going, oh, these, this bunch, they're apathetic, they're, you know, they're Fraser's children, you know, Malcolm Fraser's generation, they've got nothing on us in the 60s, the moratoriums. The so it is, you know, this is, this, this is a, it's not a new refrain. And so I always get a little bit skeptical about it mm. uh, because there can be a little bit of an older generation saying, you're not doing the things that we did, therefore you, therefore, must, yeah. you, therefore you mustn't be doing anything important. Whereas, look, I, I, it's funny, I was watching recently an interview with, um, with Billie Jean King, uh, the tennis, you know, she's now 70, in her 70s, and she was saying how much she loves the, the young generation because, to her mind, they are really politically minded. Uh, it, they just take things for granted that people should be included and there should be diversity. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not pessimistic and mm. I, I, I feel suspicious of the line that, that the younger generation are apathetic. I mean, goodness, if you look at the way in America how the high school kids have been responding to uh, gun violence. It's remarkable. Uh, the Me Too campaigns, uh, uh, you know, who knows, we may be on a, a, a moment of renewed activism. Mm. I like that idea that uh, coming into a generation who takes for granted inclusion mm. and equality. It's mm. not something that mm. has to necessarily be fought for anymore mm. because mm. it's just a given. Yep. Before we run out of time, uh, I'm also interested, Professor, in just what your your upcoming uh, projects might be. What is the, the research just around the corner? Right. The research just around the corner is I'd like to, because I've been doing these interviews of this project of, of, of interviewing people who volunteered during the epidemic, the AIDS, the AIDS epidemic, um, and those interviews have been fantastic. I'd like to do more of that. I'd, I'd like to, because I'm an oral historian, so I'd like to interview people who lived through the epidemic, particularly in Sydney, which was the epicentre of the, of the HIV epidemic in Australia, to get their sense of how they lived through that era and, and how they survived it and the long-term impact of it, because mm. I'm quite interested in ideas of, of trauma. What, I imagine there would be several oral history organisations out there now who are collating various yeah, stories. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely. No, it is. Um, what I would do quite, uh, somewhat differently is that I'm a historian, but I've also been trained as a counsellor and psychotherapist. So I'm kind of bring those two domains of the historical and the psychological together. Mm. That, that's what would interest me. And if people are interested in learning more or getting in touch with you, mm. uh, how would they do so? Uh, through the Macquarie University website, uh, the Department of Modern History, Politics and International Relations. My profile's there. They can contact me via that. Easy peasy. Mm. Well, Professor Reynolds, thank you very much for coming along and, and talking about the Queen and dreaming about the Queen. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully we'll talk to you again further down the line. Thank you. Thank you.